Tell us about how you learn to advocate for yourself and then create space and also have given yourself grace and, you know, why you're actually preaching that to others to do. When I hit college, this one course that weeds people out was organic chemistry. And our professor, he was very misogynistic and it was hard, but we talked to him and two of my girlfriends were like, we're, we're going to change the way this is done. And so through our advocacy with him, with the department, eventually the exams were fair because they never were. It was somebody who had their back turned to the classroom and you had no idea what he was talking about. And we went on to be the first three women in the history of his 30 years who got an A and then went back around and then helped all of the people in our class. And then for 10 years, I tutored organic chemistry, worked with the department, was a TA. So it's this idea of like, you can master your own complications and difficulties and then use whatever wisdom and knowledge and experience you have to make things easier for other people. There is no hood like parenthood. Hi, I'm Kanika Chadagupta. I'm a former CNN journalist, mom of three, including twins, and host of That's Total Mom Sense, the podcast. Now, if I had a dollar every time I heard, gee, you have your hands full. On my show, I interview change makers on their life lessons, legacy, and superpower of intuition, which I call our mom sense and dad sense. I've had the privilege of working with Mom 2.0, March of Dimes, and the White House, and have had some pretty amazing parents on my show. Hey, what's up? I'm Kelly Rowland. Hi, this is Chelsea Clinton. It's me, Bobby Brown. Can't wait to share my story. That's Total Mom Sense is a production of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and on YouTube so you never miss an episode. To join my tribe, visit thatstotalmomsense.com and follow me on Instagram at Kanika Chadda Gupta. Now let's dive in to today's episode. This episode has been brought to you by Child Life Essentials. Did you know that your child's most formative years for their mental and physical development are ages zero to seven? That's why I wholeheartedly trust Child Life Essentials to help supplement where my kids need it most. The brand was created by a doctor and father to ensure all kids get optimal nutrition. Dr. Murray Clark has been a guest on That's Total Mom Sense and is an expert of naturopathic medicine, homeopathic medicine, and Chinese medicine. The brand has been around for over 20 years and is known for its quality, integrity, efficacy, and trust. These are vitamin D3 drops that are ideal for babies and infants. And these are the elderberry super immune soft melts. Here's what it looks like. It's a little gummy. It has a delicious elderberry flavor that my kids and me can't get enough of. And the kicker is, unlike most vitamins and soft chews out there, the Child Life brand has zero grams of added sugar. And of course, they contain vitamin A, B, B12, C, D3, E, biotin, zinc, and more. Use my promo code MOMSENSE24 on Amazon to receive 20% off their multivitamin soft chews. Your kids will thank you. Hashtag MomWin. Have you all felt that during various phases of your life, from pivoting to a new career or parenthood, you felt overwhelmed, burnt out, despondent, and maybe even a little existential? We have all been there. I know I have. Thankfully, there's a practice we can rely on to pull ourselves out of a rut and more importantly, hone in to make this our way of life. 
It's called Practical Optimism, and it was coined by my dear friend, psychiatrist and clinical assistant professor at NYU, Dr. Sue Varma. With over two decades of private practice experience, Dr. Varma has made significant contributions to the field of mental health. Notably, she served as the pioneering medical director and psychiatrist for the esteemed 9-11 Mental Health Program at NYU. Her accomplishments have been recognized by the American Psychiatric Association, where she was honored as a distinguished fellow, the highest honor bestowed upon its members. Dr. Varma has garnered national acclaim as a sought-after medical expert on The Today Show, CBS Mornings, and Good Morning America, as well as primetime specials and news documentaries. She's been awarded two Share Care Emmy Awards and the Ivan Goldberg Award for Outstanding Service and a Mayoral Proclamation. She's been recognized as the world's top five leading health experts by Global Citizen for her contributions during the pandemic. Today, we're going to be talking about her backstory and strategies from her book, Practical Optimism, The Art, Science, and Practice of Exceptional Well-Being, published by Penguin Random House. Dr. Varma, Sue, thank you so much for joining us on That Stone Mom Says. Thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Of course. Okay, I want to tell the audience a little bit about how we met. It was when you were speaking on a panel at the Asia Society. It was South Asian Trailblazers. And our common friend, Anu Segal, uh, founder of The Culture Tree, put it together. And we just hit it off. And I realized, like, in adulthood, when you have a fast friendship like that, it just feels like home. And we went from you know, talking in Ubers to the volley parties to my favorite on the New Jersey path train, <laughs> where we were just like two girlfriends gabbing about life, which is just amazing. Love it. Love it. I t- feel the same way. And I just, I, I am so in awe and admiration of everything you do and all the hats that you wear and how you're just so good with people and also so genuine and accomplished. So thank you for being you. Oh, thank you. Let's start with your parents and who they were and how they raised you. Yes. So, you know, I have to say so much of my interest in psychiatry and mental health came from this early environment, which is kind of unique in a South Asian family to be so interested in mental health. My father is a child psychiatrist and he was one of the first trained child psychiatrists in Northern India. He had come to the States to do residency and fellowship and then had heard about this pioneering work that was being done in New Delhi of integrating child mental health, school social work, and children with disabilities into mainstream classrooms. So he was very much about giving back. He would go back and forth between New York and New Delhi and loved this project and wanted to get involved in this school that this woman had started when she was 16. Uh, She was one of those savants who um, had done like four bachelors by the time she was 18, became principal of the school, Uh, at 20 and two of the first three prime ministers were involved and it was being used as a model and she had a school in India for how to integrate children who have problems, learning problems into the fold and to treat them like everybody else. They met, they fell in love, they got married um, and then the school expanded to a thousand students. They continued their work together and then my dad had to come back to resume his job in the United States. So that's how I came along a few years down the line. And my mom came and continued her PhD and other studies and just was lifelong learner. 
And people would come up to me and say in the grocery store, you know, your dad, your parents changed my life. So my uh, father was involved with uh, folks who were recovering from addiction. And they were like, we, from a combination of depression and substance use, like we kind of totally fell off the wagon. And because of your dad, I now have a job and I have a family. And our living room was always filled with people who were looking for help both South Asian and not. But definitely this was very unique because people even now in the South Asian community don't seek help. Yeah. And then my mom went to go work for the New York Board of Ed and fought for kids, immigrant children to have rights in schools, to be able to get tested in their own language. So I just saw how much dedication and love that they had to the community. I was so inspired by it, would go to all their meetings as a kid. And I knew that I was definitely interested in science, but I also loved people and how you can affect change in people's lives. So that's kind of the early, the beginnings of um, of how this career started for me. Wow, that's incredible. And I feel like a true marker of success is your legacy and your parents must be beyond proud to have the daughter that they have in you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Like so much of the cultural upbringing, I want to say is mostly positive. And then there's always things about culture that whether it's how we interpret it or how it it was imposed on us can also create blind spots. So I'm the first yes. to say that, you know, so much of this was so helpful, but at the same time, you know, it didn't necessarily create room for us to seek our own treatment. As funny as that may sound, somebody may say, well, you know, you came from a family of people who were in mental health. But another thing that came from my family was this idea that like, of course you're strong enough to be able to do, you know, a hundred things. And I was working a right. hundred hours a week. And I talk about this in my book, Practical Optimism, about how I had to go through my own journey and my own hiccups and stumbling blocks to, to really be the person that I am today. So it was like all this wonderful, great stuff happened, but it didn't prepare me for what do you do when you, someone who's always caregiving to other people, who's like a model of foundation of strength in the society, what happens when you have your own problems? Yes, 100%. And I do want to get into that. You know, you are everywhere. You're helping your patients. You're teaching a college course. You're on daytime TV. You wrote a book. You know, you have a family. So you have a ton on your plate and you always have. You've been this overachiever. Tell us about how you learned to advocate for yourself and then create space and also have given yourself grace and, you know, why you're actually preaching that to others to do. One of the things I talk about is like to not let your own, either your own self-limiting beliefs or other people's prevent you from doing what you feel very strongly and passionate about. So I knew that, you know, from an early age that I was felt very called to do the work that I do right now. And I didn't expect there to be any stumbling blocks because I'd always done, you know, well in school, well in the sciences. And then when I hit college, this one course that's notorious for, they call it the weeder, what weeds people out was organic chemistry. Oh. And our professor, male professor said, women just don't have the visual spatial reasoning to understand organic chemistry. And people were known to fail. And then this prevented you from reaching your goal of becoming a doctor if you failed this class or didn't do well in it. And he's like, in our, we had a class of 600 people. He's like, no women in 30 years in my class has ever gotten an A. And I was like, but, you know, I need an A because I want to <laughs> go to med school. Because this is my dream because I need to help people. I'm very, very, very called. This is not a career. This is a mission. The first exam came and I think we all got, you know, I don't know, a 50. And I was like, I've never gotten a 50 in my life. 
And somehow maybe a 50 was on the curve, maybe it could have been a good grade, I don't know. But I went in and I was like, this is not going to work. And it was very misogynistic and it was hard, but we talked to him and two of my girlfriends were like, we're, we're going to change the way this is done. And so through our advocacy with him, with the department, eventually the exams were fair because they never were. It was somebody who had their back turned to the classroom and you had no idea what he was talking about. And we went on to be the first three women in in the history of his 30 years who got an A and then went back around and then helped all of the people in our class. And then for 10 years, I tutored organic chemistry, worked in the department, was a TA. So it's this idea of like, you can master your own complications and difficulties and then use whatever wisdom and knowledge and experience you have to make things easier for other people. And that's what I'm doing in the last 20 years as a psychiatrist and you know, working with trauma survivors and from my own experiences and setbacks is what have I learned both on both sides of the couch? And then I spent the last five years doing intense research for this book. Hundreds, thousands of hours were spent digging into every kind of journal across all medical fields and finance and anything, economy, so that I could put the best science, best practices so that other people don't have to struggle unnecessarily. Like, None of us is going to get out of this life without grief, loss, disappointment. But what we can learn are tools and a skill set so that we can manage it most effectively because problems will hit all of us. And then how do we thrive, not just survive? And that was the second part of my career was helping people not just go as a doctor, not just go from dysfunctional to functional, but from functional to optimal. Well, how do you help yourself? Because you are an overachiever and you've you're, you're successful at it. How do you create, you know, I guess this skill set for yourself? Yes. So I think, you know, it's not like, first of all, I want to dispel this myth, like that balance, you know, may not exist, the concept of balance and that everybody's balance looks differently. And, and, it, and, it dif and it's different based on what you value most in life. And also just to recognize that there are going to be some times when you're not going to have balance. And that's something that I had to learn in the last five years the hard way because I can't be at everything that I, I there, like there's not, I don't have a clone. I don't, there's not five of me. But for me, something that I do for myself, for my patients, have seen in my family, and we've talked about this, is four non-negotiable habits a day. And, you know, for me, they're the four M's of mental health. I had to come up with a 59-second protocol on how to help people. During during COVID, there was a um, April 2020 global pandemic relief that was hosted by the United Nations, Lady Gaga, all three late night hosts. And they had like Oprah and Elton John and Rolling Stones. And then they called me and I was like, okay, good. I'm glad to hear about this program. I'll be watching. They're like, no, 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 we want you to be in it. And then they're like, we want you to give hope and how to help people. And, and so I was like, great. I have like, what, an hour? They're like, no, you have a minute. And so I was like, how do I give people tangible tips and like then, so I looked at like, what am I doing in my life that has kept me afloat in the most challenging of times? And those days I was homeschooling my kids and there was 15 minute morning meetings. So literally I was teaching them, that's all we had, two, like two children, full day's worth. They were very young, couldn't entertain themselves, seeing patients and doing countless nonstop media stuff about mental health because the world was mentally, emotionally collapsing, not just physically. Yes. These four non-negotiable habits are movement mindfulness, mastery, and meaningful engagement. So carve out 10 to 15 minutes. They're non-negotiable. Some days I can't see a friend. I'm going to call them on my way to wherever. Me and you had a lovely conversation when I was like watching my kids at sports the other day. So it's like you fit in whenever you can. 
Yeah. If I can get to the gym and I try to do three or four sessions of strength training, I will walk, you know, to wherever I have to go instead of taking the subway. So naturally building in social snacking, these meaningful connections can come from the grocery store clerk one day. It can be your barista looking for opportunities to make eye contact, to smile, to have the social chit chat. Like we, we we're in such a rush to get places. Everything is so easy and convenient online that we miss these natural built in layers of social support. And then mastery, I feel so fulfilled that every single day, me talking to you right now, like living in your purpose. And I feel like if you can't find your purpose, it's kind of your job to create it. And the way we do that is by putting the cart before the horse. So if you're like, I don't know what I want to do, that's fine. Go to conferences, go to meetings, go to networking events. Um, A lot of women I know, like in their 30s and 40s might be pivoting. They might be like in the thick of it with their young kids, or they may be just coming out of it. And they're like, I want to do something for me that's meaningful, that allows me to give back, you know, listening to podcasts. There's so many things and resources. Networking on Instagram, I've met so many amazing people through that. If you. So, and then also by being mindful of the time that we spend, because it's so easy to go down a rabbit hole and spend excessive time on social media. So I think whatever non-negotiable habits that feed you, it could be journaling for some people. For me, sometimes it's nature walks. I try as much as possible two or three times, even sitting in a, on a park bench, having a coffee if you have 15 minutes, it goes a long way for your mental health and it and goes a long way for mine. I know that if I don't spend time in nature, I go off balance and I love to swim in the ocean. So something will work, different things will work for different people, but do what feels, I want to say, an investment and gives you exponential return, not just like a one-to-one. Yes, 100%. And one in five people in the U.S. have some sort of mental health illness or or disorder. So I feel like the numbers are growing and it's because of the times we live in, whether it's, you know, this digital age constantly, you know, having phones, social media, all of that. But one more thing thrown in, which is really what the show is predicated upon, is parenthood will do a number on your mental health. What advice do you have for parents specifically, because we have to take care of ourselves before we can take care of our families. You can't fill from an empty cup. Yes, absolutely. You know, I think there's so much pressure, especially on women, you know, like you never hear like a guy is hanging out with his children and they'll be like, oh, you're babysitting the kids today. And you're like, wait, what? You're your children. Right, are you right. Babysitting them, right. And like a guy goes to the grocery store and he's got his little baby in the front and they're like, oh, how sweet because we don't expect that, right? And that the women are expected to carry the emotional load and mental load. And like they say, you know, your women are expected to parent like they don't work and work like they don't parent. Like it's just, it's it's impossible. And then yeah, add in layer cultural, you know, sort of the goddess myth or the Sita myth, like women are supposed to be self-sacrificial. So I would say really you have to push back on all of these externally imposed ideas of perfection that women have so willingly, I think, or or unwillingly accepted. And that means if it means having a dinner with the girls, going to a happy hour, going to like a parent's night out, a mom's night out, a girl's trip, if it means taking that yoga class, like part of it is really educating your partner. And like, I love that you talk about this, but like, I think couples need to be in couples therapy as much as possible, especially, and it, I know it's so hard. So like now that things have gone more remote, if you can on a Saturday, and if you're lucky enough that you've found a good therapist and they, you know, take your insurance or not. And on a Saturday morning, that's the only time, you know, that you have to plop your kids in front of the TV or whatever it is, get a babysitter so that you can work on your relationship. 
The other thing that my husband and I do is as my kids got a little bit older and we were able to find the right family childcare, you know, grandparents, aka, we took trips together, just the two of us. And I feel like that's such an important investment. And I know that it's a luxury and we weren't able to do this when the kids were super, super young, even if it's just one night away. But the idea is that like, we had a life before they were born. We had a, a very strong friendship and I, and I never want to do anything that jeopardizes that. And I think a lot of people lose that spark in their relationship, in their, in their lives as a result of kids. And, and, and the number one thing that you can do for your kids is to be healthy, to be happy, and to have a strong and stable marriage if, if it's meant to be. Because a lot of people will say, we're also seeing a lot of divorce, you know, when people are in their 40s and 50s and their kids are like young, you know, elementary, middle school, high school. So it is a fact. Not every couple is meant to be continually investing. Maybe they're, they realize they're better off apart. And that's a whole separate conversation. But as much as possible, getting your own therapy, getting your own exercise, having your own career, having your own hobbies and interests outside of the marriage. And it seems daunting because you're like, I'm just trying to survive. And if that's the case, that's the case. You know, if you feel like all I can do right now is just take care of my kids, do it 100%. But also, please make time for your mental health. That's huge. Yes. Yes. No. And, and I think couples realized really, uh, you know, during the pandemic that you fall into a habit of operating and like being in two different swim lanes and having just transactional kind of interactions related to the kids in the mornings, in the evenings, and that's it. You know, when that happens and becomes, you know, the the norm for you, something's going to give. So, and I get it. Like I, that is the reality. I have so many friends who have different favorite TV shows. And so the husband and wife or the two partners will be home at the same time, but they'll be in different rooms watching their own show. And I feel like, okay, it is what it is. And if you have a very strong, solid relationship, great, watch your own different stuff. But if that's the only time that after the entire day you have 30 minutes and that would have been your 30 minutes together and you're in two separate rooms, that's a problem for me because I'm like, that's your only opportunity to come together. Can you find something together? So, you know, my husband and I both have big careers and we're very supportive of each other and we always try to find a show. It's maybe only once a week, 30 minutes that we get to sit down together to watch it because we don't get to watch a lot of TV in general. So like we watched White Lotus together, Breaking Bad. So we, that's our bonding. But so bond, some people do pickleball, some people play tennis together. So don't lose the friendship. Don't lose the laughter. Yes. Yes. I'm with you. And now let's dive into your book, Practical Optimism. It's like another baby, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yes. And I'm so proud and excited about it. Yes, we are too. We're so grateful to you. So tell us who is and how do you become rather a practical optimist? So the first thing is to realize that not everyone is born with this sort of rosy, um, optimistic outlook. Optimism is genetic to some degree, but that's the interesting part. To some degree, only 25% of optimism is genetic. The rest of it can be learned. And scientists did find that there is a particular gene that is associated with optimism. However, the beauty is that even though there is a gene associated with it, so that if you have this particular gene, you're more likely to have a positive outlook, what they found is that optimism is far more than a positive outlook. And that's why I got really excited because optimism is also a skill set of being proactive, of being pro-social, of reaching out, of advocating, of seeking support, coping mechanisms. And all of that can be learned. And so much of that was work that I was already doing with my patients. And so when I looked at the science of it, I was like, oh my God, so many features of cognitive behavioral therapy, what I talked about putting the cart before the horse, 
which is called behavioral activation. All of these things can be very instrumental. So I've come up with eight pillars and you do not need to be an optimist to begin with. If you are great, it's going to boost your optimism. And if you're not, you can start by having a certain philosophy and a mindset. And just to know that this is a book that's going to be by your nightstand. You're going to come to it for years. Use it as a guide, as a reference, as a friend in your journey in life. Yes. Yeah. Let's go through high level what these pillars are, and then we'll dive into a few. Yes. So purpose is is the first one, and they don't have to be in any particular order, but if you look at it, it kind of makes sense, that in, and it's an arc. It starts by having intention in life. Your purpose can be P with a capital P of what do you want to do, and it can be a small P. What do I want to do in this situation? What is my goal? What is my intention in this relationship and in this project? And I talk about the importance of tying your passion to your purpose by giving back, and we know that people, children, who volunteer, like to help younger kids than them. So adolescents that help younger kids end up having less inflammation in the body and having less cardiac disease as they grow up. Wow. People who volunteer two hours a week for another person's benefit live longer. So there's a million reasons why you should invest in having purpose. And even if you don't know what your purpose is, exercising can boost your sense of purpose. Meditating can boost your sense of purpose. So if you feel lost, get out of the house, go for a walk, pick up some weights, you will feel rejuvenated. You will feel as if you matter in the world. And that's a really important part of purpose is, do I matter? Do I have impact? Am I making contribution? So I have a quiz in the beginning of the book. And if you, for people who have pre-ordered it or you, you get that quiz, it's 40 questions and it asks you five questions per pillar so that you can figure out, are you a practical optimist? And if not, here's what you can do. And I also want to tell people that this is not going to replace therapy. So if you find that take some of these questions, you're like, no, 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 no then maybe there's an underlying depression. Maybe there's an underlying anxiety. And so the beauty of being a psychiatrist and who works with patients, and some of them in the darkest of times, my first job was working, I was a medical director of the 9-11 mental health program at NYU. And I worked with trauma survivors and I've figured out what works learning from people who went through extreme stress and still came out, you know, thriving on the other end. So yeah. Purpose then sets an intention because the last P, the eighth P is practicing healthy habits. And it helps you having intention to then executing on the habits. And the P's in between are problem solving, processing your emotions, learning to sit with them, anger, guilt, shame, what to do with that, fear, sadness, grief. And it gives you steps on how to identify your emotions. I call them name it, claim it, tame it, and reframe it. And I give you steps on identifying where in the body you feel it and then what to do about it. How do you, how can you change your mindset? So it took me five years to do the research. So I would say get the book because there's no way I can explain all of these P's in five minutes. But I can tell you that it has made a massive impact in my life, in all the patients I work with. And if I were to tell you what is my secret in terms of juggling, you know, 50 different things and still being alive and smiling and talking to you today, it is practical optimism because it has taught me to persevere, to not give up to not get invested in the naysayers and the haters and because there will always be that and to not take rejection personally to pivot to pause you know not stop it teaches you how to be present and i'm not saying i i still very much consider myself a work in progress in the sense that like i'm human and i'm going to have things pulling me and they're going to be competing things and i talk about the idea of competing agendas where like okay let's say you're you're invited to give a talk but then your kids also need you at the same time your friend is getting married. You know, there's always going to be times when we're pulled and it's so hard. So the book also teaches you how to have communication 
something I see often in my practice working with women in their 20s and 30s. They're like, everyone I know is getting married and they're having such expensive weddings and bachelorette parties and bridal showers. And like, I'm spending $2,000 on a wedding times 10 friends. Like I'm using all my PTO time. So it teaches you how to have boundaries, how to maintain relationships. So almost any problem that you can imagine, you can put it through the eight Ps and be like, all right, Sue, what would I do? How would I handle this? And then sort of step by step, it teaches you. And there's a whole chapter on problem solving, a punch list. Like if I'm trying to pivot in a career, like what are, you know, 10 things, what are 20 things I would ask myself to get through it? And then my favorite chapter is people. And it's all about people and relationships and emotional attunement and getting to the heart of matter with people. So I don't know. So much to say. Yeah, it's it's brilliant. It's it's so brilliant, and I think that you know at every kind of juncture of our life, you could put it through this filtration, like you said, and there's a way through it. Yeah. There's you don't have to have a fatalistic victim mentality. In fact, when you are a practical optimist, you can get through anything. Yes, yes, because you know, and, and that's how it differs from toxic positivity in that it says that toxic positivity is like rah rah, everything will be fine, without understanding the depth the gravity, the darkness, the complexity, the nuance of what someone has been through. And that's why I feel like, you know, I'm not a life coach, I'm a psychiatrist, but there is a part of it, there is a coaching element to all of this and that it empowers you, you know, and it doesn't, you're, you're not, you're not a victim, you're not passive. And I talk about pessimism and the three P's of pessimism, which one of these fabulous researchers, Martin Seligman, who's the founder of positive psychology says that people who are pessimistic have a more, ten, more likely tendency to see things take things personally when bad things happen. They think of them as being permanent and pervasive. And then I added the fourth fourth one, they, they, they become passive. And so this book talks about how to not go down that route. We all have people in our lives who are that, how to sort of boost their agency, you know? And if I were to say, what is the essence of this book? It's that we re- recognizing that hope is both a noun and a verb, that there is an actionable component to hope and to optimism. And that you will live your best life if you're able to use it as a practice, like a yoga practice, learning a new language, things like that. Could I ask you quickly what your mom sense moment was? A moment where you trusted your built-in sixth sense and intuition? You know, I have to say maybe when my um, first baby was born and I had no idea what to do with a newborn, I was like, oh my God, because I was always the youngest in both sides of my family and never really did take care of a, a life. And I was like, I don't even know, like probably I changed diapers in medical school and delivered babies in medical school, like in my rotations. But I looked at him and I said, you know, I have no idea what the hell you're, what I'm, what I'm supposed to do with you. I've just spent 42 hours in labor uh, to get you out and your most beautiful, precious thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And my, my role is to guide, love and protect you. And now that that little baby is, you know, going to be turning 12 soon and he's taller than I am. He's like, looks like a little man. I come back to that. And I said, you know, I'm not always going to, even though I'm a psychiatrist, I'm going to do the best. You're going through hormonal changes. You're looking at girls and you, you want to have a girlfriend and all of these challenging things that I'm having to navigate, you know, the talking back and like most wonderful kid, brilliant, sweet, kind, smart, sporty, loving, compassionate, but also giving me, you know, that pushback. And so that's when I'm like, you know what? I don't always have the right answer, but I'm going to sit with you on the floor. We're going to figure this out. We're gonna, I'm, and I'm not your friend, but I want to understand you. I want to use my curiosity. And so I don't own you. My job is to put you in the best, give you, equip you with skills so you can make the best decision possible for you. So taking a little bit of that authoritative stance back and, and having more curiosity 
and love and thinking of myself as a guide more than like the owner of this child. Yes, yes. And lastly, where can we find you and your book? Please connect with me on Instagram. That's where I'm most um, active of all my social media accounts. And it's um, Dr. Sue Varma, the word doctor. My website, I have blogs on that. And I would love for you guys to subscribe to that. So it's also the word drsuevarma.com. And then the book is anywhere books are sold. So can't wait for you all to read it. And it's coming out in many languages, which is kind of unusual for a debut author. So I'm very excited that it will be out there in the world in different countries. Yes. Thank you so much. Congratulations. So, so proud of you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. What a wonderful conversation opportunity. Thanks for tuning in to my interview with Dr. Sue Varma. I think we all need to have a resource to help our mental health. And this is really the best in class. I love the book, Sue. Congratulations. And I'm excited for the audience members to learn more about it and take the quiz to find out whether they're a practical optimist or not and how they can become one. I'd like to gift a copy to someone who left a review and I'll read it now. It was on Apple and it was bride to be 0914 and she writes, it's the deep mom friend talk. These conversations feel like heartfelt, honest coffee talk with a smart friend who knows just what to ask and how to ask it. Kanika traverses profoundly big topics while still keeping things fun and light. Oh my goodness, thank you so much for writing in. Be sure to email me at thatstotalmomsense at gmail.com with your address and you'll be receiving your very own copy of Practical Optimism. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. You all can follow me on Instagram where I post videos and snippets of my interviews. And my handle is at Kanika Chada Gupta. And everything lives on my website, that's totalmomsense.com. Remember, always trust your mom sense and dad sense. Stay strong, super parents. I'll see you next time.